So welcome everybody. Spiritual psychotherapy episode five. Um, so with these past few weeks, what we've been doing as usual is starting off with some, some Zen things in order to orient our minds. And then from there, uh, once we have the right state of mind, we could delve a little bit into the Kabbalah. So this week I have some really very interesting um, quotes from this book that I'm reading called Zen Flesh, Zen Bones. And these quotes really resonate with me on a deep level and uh, something about the words themselves and the, the, the prose that's being used really just hits me on a deeper level. And I want to hear from you what your thoughts are and some of the strange things that are being written here. So here's one quote. Buddha said, I consider the positions of kings and rulers as that of dust motes. I observe treasure of gold and gems as so many bricks and pebbles. I look upon the finest silken robes as tattered rags. I see myriad worlds of the universe as small seeds of fruit and the greatest lake in India as a drop of oil on my foot. I perceive the teachings of the world to be the illusion of magicians. I discern the highest conception of emancipation as golden brocade in a dream and view the holy path of the illuminated one as flowers appearing in one's eyes. I see meditation as a pillar of a mountain, nirvana as a nightmare of daytime. I look upon the judgment of night of right and wrong as the serpentine dance of a dragon. Hey, good to see you. And the rise and fall of beliefs as but traces left by the four seasons. I absolutely fell in love with this quote. I loved it so much. I even shared it with my Rav in Israel. I, I just came back from Israel. Very holy, special experience. I'll tell you guys about it. So this quote, the reason it resonates so deeply with me is he, he's talking about this grand experience, really a mystical way of living, a mystical way of experiencing the world in any given time. And he's saying, whether it be gemstones or gold and silver or whatever it is, it's only like pebbles for me. Silken robes are like tattered rags. There's no difference in the material world in anything's value, anything's worth. It reminds me of a specific Zen koan where they say, what is the fundamental principle of Buddhism? And he says, or what's, what is the, the Buddha nature of the world? And he says, a dried dung scraper. And it's like, what do you mean of all things that are like, you would think a holy object would be, you know, considered something that's part of this nature. And it's like, no, to be enlightened means to not discern between good and evil, between yucky and, you know, not yucky. That's kind of the way people perceive the world is through, oh, this disgusts me, this doesn't. But to be totally equanimous, totally seeing everything as just what it is, that's real enlightenment. So um, for this Buddhist Zen teaching, that's the idea. He's saying like the greatest lake is like a drop of oil on my foot. Um, all these teachings are just the illusion of magicians. Just be with what is in a way. Um, all these conceptions of emancipation are like something in a dream. Um, and, you know, the, the views of the holy path are just like flowers appearing in one's eyes. Stop imagining. Stop. And it's not even saying to stop doing it. It's saying it's so beautiful. It just is that way. Your imaginations are just kind of like a, a row of petals in your eyes. 
Um, he doesn't see anything the way it is. Exactly. That's <laughs> exactly the point. And to really be in touch with God is to be in touch fully with what is as it is. And to not add a whole level of extra symbolic significance to what you're perceiving. And to just perceive the world that is. There's a purity in that. It's, it's reductionistic. But it's the ultimate humility. It's the ultimate, as Jack would say, it's the ultimate stripping away of dogma in your approach towards reality. I also think that we do so much that you're supposed to look at a situation and say, this is happening for a reason. Mm. What's the reason why this is happening? What's really going on? Why am I like, you know, the deeper meaning with my sister? Yeah, this is, this is going on with me. So and I don't want to take that away from you. And I think that is true. That this so what we often talk about, and people might want to call it a cop out, but I really don't think it's a cop out, is the idea that at the deepest level, things are paradoxical. So on the one hand, it's a hundred percent true that things happen for a reason, and that that reason leads you eventually towards enlightenment or towards some experience of Hashem. But at the same time, once you get to that period of feeling like you're one with Hashem. You realize all that stuff was really, even though it brought you and led you back towards God, it was also just kind of smoke and mirrors. It was also just an illusion. And really the deepest reality is just things are, period, in this moment. And once you're so in this moment, you stop thinking necessarily about a storyline and how this means something with regards to my ego. Because once you see past your ego... You, you don't need, feel this constant need to relate everything to your ego. So you ask this question, what's the meaning of my life? And you say, well, that question is a little bit meaningless because if you realize that your ego is an illusion, then there doesn't have to be a meaning to your life as you being separate. There's, there's a more of an, a meaning as such, a meaning to the world that currently is. So that's my answer to that, is that you're right 100% and at the same time, there's also another way of looking at things once you get, you know, further along the path. And I don't think you're, you know, far away from any kind of end goal. I think it's perfect the way it is. And I think the meanings that we perceive are beautiful and perfect the way they are. Um, and how about this idea? This, this one is really what I'd like to hear from you guys. What do you think this means? I asked Jack this earlier. I see meditation as a pillar of a mountain, nirvana as a nightmare of daytime. What do you think that means? I'm so perplexed and intrigued at the same time by this idea. Meditation, like the pillar of a mountain, nirvana as a nightmare of daytime. What do you think it means? Can you say the whole thing again, please? Oh, the entire quote? Mm -hmm. So it's a long one, but I'll read the... Oh, this last part. Yeah, yeah. Um, I see meditation as a pillar of a mountain, nirvana as a nightmare of daytime. Yeah. Mountain doesn't have a pillar. Mm. Ah, I was thinking about that, right? Does a mountain need a, a pillar? Mm. Meditation is almost like trying to add a pillar to a mountain, or as they say, ping ting comes for fire, like the god of fire coming for fire, or uh, somebody looking for fire or enlightenment with a lit lamp. And it's like, do you need a lit lamp to look for fire? If you realized you already had the fire in your hand, you wouldn't be looking for the fire. That's the same thing that happens whenever we're looking for enlightenment because the source of enlightenment is already within us. It's not something you have to find externally. So whatever holes you're looking to fill within yourself, 
realize those are already whole. Those are already filled. Um, and Nirvana is a nightmare of daytime. That one's extremely intriguing to me because a nightmare of daytime, it's an oxymoron. You can't have a nightmare in the daytime. By definition, it's just a dream in the daytime. It's not a nightmare. They can't exist together. Exactly. So Nirvana almost is like, uh, it's almost like a dream of some sort that you think you're having, but it's, it's kind of illusory because you're not the one having it. It's, it's almost ineffable to put this stuff into words, but it's something for me to think about a little bit more. And this is part of my favorite part of it. I look upon the judgment of right and wrong as the serpentine dance of a dragon and the rise and fall of beliefs as but traces left by the four seasons that it strips away a little bit of this moralistic nature of being a human being where we try to constantly see everything as tobara, right? Adam and Hava, when they ate from Etzadat, they started seeing the world specifically through tobara. But then once you read Harambam and you start to realize like before we did that, before we ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, before we gained the cerebral cortex to start seeing the world through these, this lens of good and evil, it just is shake it and emet, Harambam says, Maimonides says, it's just truth and falsehood. It just is or it isn't. It's isness or is it not? That's what it's really about. And that's an enlightened state. That doesn't mean you should go and do evil and say, oh, I'm just doing what is. Because that's a way of becoming psychotic in a way. But the real thing is to, to notice this and just say, okay, I understand now. Or there is now understanding. Um, and the rise and fall of beliefs, like traces left by the four, four seasons, beliefs are just thoughts that are coming into my mind. At the end of the day, thoughts and beliefs and all that stuff, it's in a, in a way, it's like a separation between you and God. With, because really being present right now with God is just being fully present, without thought, being totally empty. Like we say sometimes, empty your cup, totally empty out your ego, and God will be what fills it up. So that's just a food for thought from that quote. Now, the next part of, of this, um, of this, these quotes that I'm going to read are from a book called uh, Zen Flesh, Zen Bones as well. Um, and the writer is trying to tell you uh, something about a lot of these cryptic stories uh, that we're talking about and like what they mean and how to read them. So what is a Zen koan? We're going to try to address a little bit of that now. And a Zen koan is like a Zen riddle uh, that's not necessarily meant to be solved in a way that you're trying to solve a math problem, um, but it's supposed to sort of shock you into enlightenment in this moment. Let's see what, what that means. Say it again, like a mashal in a way. But a mashal, I think you're supposed to use more logic and brain power. This is like trying to shock you, almost like a funny joke that catches you by surprise. And it really only works if it surprises you and makes you laugh. Punchline. Exactly, with a punchline. But if the joke just kind of comes about and you, it needs to be explained, it's really not as funny. What's your initial reaction? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So the point of the koan is not even necessarily to be explained. So let's see what we mean. He says, if you like sweets and easy living, skip this book. It is about men tremendously intent on being reborn, on satori, on enlightenment. It can happen to you in a flashing moment. Something opens. You are new all through. You see the same, unsame world with fresh eyes. This universe re renewing power comes by grace, not logic. So, so far he's saying, 
if this is not about reasoning your way to understanding. Instead, it's something that happens from outside of you fundamentally. Your ego cannot be the source of overcoming your ego, as we often say. It has to come from what the Christians would call grace, what we would call hen. Um, it has to come from something beyond us. That just kind of happens of itself. It's almost like tuning into a radio frequency that by making your antenna good enough, it just naturally picks up that channel. Whatever you do or wherever you are, uh, wherever you are seems to make little difference. It doesn't make sense. It makes you, right? So this is not about making sense. This is not about trying to understand something without rational faculty. This is something that just makes up the very framework of being in a way. Um, these old Chinese devised problems called koan, uh, to stop their students' word drunkenness and mind wandering. So that, that's the, the purpose that these Chinese people made these koans, is to help people escape from getting lost in thought constantly. When they had the student meditate on a koan, this was another way of saying, don't waste your life merely sensing. Channel thought and feeling to one purpose and then let it happen. He asked this question, now, has this art of turning on one's light been lost? It needn't be if you put your mind and all else you have to it, right? If the leaders of mankind were more aware when by chance they come into minor powers, they might exploit others less, right? So if, if we, as a, as a world, if we're all more aware and, and less lost in thought and ego, the, the world will be a much more beautiful place. It'll be a place where we respect each other, where we play more of a fun game with each other rather than uh, fighting tremendous wars and letting our egos constantly get in the way. This is true on a personal level as well. The more you let go of your ego on a personal level, the less uptight you can be with other people, the, the better your sense of humor, the more you're able to roll with the punches and be a good sport, no matter what the situation, no matter what the scenario. These old teachers complimented their students by criticism, blows even. When they praised, it usually meant belittling. This was the custom. They had a deep concern for their pupils, but showed it in presence, not words. They were strong fellows, shockers. They gave questions for which the only answer was one's whole being. Meaning, when you encounter a koan, the point is not to unravel it and figure it out. The only answer that you can possibly give to a koan is by, allow, by giving up control of your ego and allowing yourself to be that enlightenment, to be that wisdom, to manifest it in that moment. What is the right answer to a koan? There are many right answers, and there are also none. There's even a hook, oh, sorry, a book in Japan, hard to come by, which gives proper answers to each of these mind openers. What a joke, he says, for the koan itself is the answer. And by the time there is a right answer to it, Zen is dead. Meaning if you think you got the answer, and now uh -huh, I, I understand it, I'm, I'm going to explain it to you. That's the equivalent of saying, oh, I get the joke. It's because this and this and this, and you're explaining the joke. It takes away the power of the joke. It takes away the power of the humor. We, all, we often say like the deepest truth in life is, is humor. Like it's almost as if God is playing this game with himself this whole, or herself this whole time. 
And then when he or she finally wakes up from that illusion, it's almost hilariously humorous. Like, I can't believe I deluded myself and was able to play this game as little old Michael Franco, even though, wow, Baruch Haba. That's it. No, that's it. I have, I have nothing else to, to say. If, if you're here, I feel already enlightened. Baruch Haba. Um, so we were just talking about what a Zen koan is. And it's funny, Michelle, last week you asked me, a Zen koan is like a Zen riddle that's not meant to be solved yeah, with yeah, logic. Yeah. Just It's like a joke, a funny shock. joke to shock you into enlightenment. So, so Michelle was asking me, like, you know, why not find this stuff from the Gemara? Why not find it just from Jewish sources? And I always say the same reason I, I named the class spiritual psychotherapy is because I see this stuff not as a religion, but as a form of psychotherapy, as a form of giving us a way to speak about these things, to unravel our own psychological complexes that we have with our ego. We play these ego and humility games with God. And now we could come back to our Judaism in a more intelligent way. And we could come back to our Judaism in a way that doesn't constantly force us to try to impress God or try to be humble before God, but instead we could just be with God. So to me, this is, is like therapy. And I think the, 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 we could come now later on when we're going to learn the stuff from the Gemara and from Kabbalah. This is like a tool to understand that better. It's almost like meditation before doing, you know, taking a, a swing at a, with a baseball bat. If you meditate before and you can be more present, you'll notice the way the ball's spinning better. You'll take a better swing. You'll see, oh, this is a curveball. Let me adjust my my stance to hit that curveball. I'm sorry. I know. Yeah. Why, why does Zen mm -hmm. shock you more or bring you into spirituality more than a ah, piece of Gemara? I don't think it's more than a piece of Gemara. But I think it allows you to approach the Gemara in a way that takes away a lot of your, your psychological problems. Baruch Haba, what a public apology. Not, not necessary. Not necessary at all. Not at all, my friend. So the idea is that it's supposed to psychologically prepare you. Like the Hachamim, it says, before they would uh, uh, pray, exactly, they would meditate before an hour and, a, and an after the prayer an hour i think to me this is the same kind of thing when i use this psychological stuff to center myself like meditation it allows me to approach judaism in a way that allows me to, to get rid of a lot of my psychological complexes and i stop approaching god the same way i did when i was in second grade and i could approach god more in a less dogmatic way so Arya Kaplan talks about this. He says there's many different types of meditation. And even within Zen, there's a lot of different types of meditation, not just the nothingness, but that's part of it. And nothingness also appears in Jewish meditation. Um, but there are meditations on koans, just like there are in Pesukim. And to me, it goes hand in hand, but we could, we could talk about it later if you want, 100%. This, this is a long discussion, but I, I do I do understand that uh, that that sentiment, for sure. Baruch Habara ID is connecting. Erwin Dan, my, my good, uh, beautiful cousin over here. Baruch Habara ID. Good to see you. Um, so we were just talking about Zen koans, and then we're going to get to the Kabbalistic stuff soon. Um so I'll just read a little bit more of this quote for you guys, and I'll hear, you'll let me know how it lands on you. 
They gave questions for which the only answer was one's whole being. What is the right answer to a koan? There are many right answers and there are also none. There is a book in Japan, like we said, hard to come by, which gives proper answers to each of those, these mind openers. So it's not something that should be explained, just like a joke doesn't need to be explained what a joke. But the koan itself is the answer. And by the time there is a right answer to it, Zen is dead. Meaning, stop trying to explain the joke or the wisdom and just allow it to hit you in this moment to be fully present. Uh, none of these stories make any pretense at logic. They are dealing with states of mind rather than words. Unless this is understood, the point of the classic will be missed. The whole intent was to help the pupil break the shell of his limited mind and attain a second eternal birth, Satori enlightenment. Each problem is a barrier. Those who have the spirit of Zen pass through it. Those who live in Zen understand one koan after another, each in his own way, as if they were seeing the unseen and living in the illimitable. Munan wrote the following words in his introduction to the work. So we'll read this in a second. But basically what it's saying is exactly what I was trying to say, uh, what I'm trying to say, and what I hope it does for you like it does for me, is what I found from just my Judaism, and I said this in the very first class of the class series, was I couldn't escape relating to God like God was my mom or my dad. I couldn't escape trying to impress God in a childish way. And it, it's very off-putting sometimes when you, every time you approach God, it's the same kind of thing that, game that you play. But eventually, once you mature, you hope to achieve a level where you're, you, you stop doing this. You stop projecting everything onto God and you stop you know, throwing things. And it's just now being with God and just being present. For me, there's a tremendous value in that. And I think Kabbalah picks up on that as well. And we'll, we'll see. Um, now listen to this quote. I really love this. Zen has no gates. The purpose of Buddha's words is to enlighten others. Therefore, Zen should be gateless. Now, how does one pass through this gateless gate? Some say that whatever enters through a gate is not family treasure, that whatever is produced by the help of another is likely to dissolve and perish. So what that's saying is anything that you're trying to use from other people in order to get through this gate, if you're relying fully on another person's inter interpretation and another person's experience, it's not going to work. You have to do it yourself. Exactly. Exactly. A hundred percent. And that's why we don't rely on shamans. We don't rely on every, you know, these other things. We, we have a direct connection to God. That's what Hacham Fa'ur says in horizontal society. That's why there's a value in every single person praying on his own. Um, even such words are like raising waves in a windless sea or performing an operation upon a healthy body. Like we were saying earlier, it's like looking for the fire with a lit lamp. You have it already. It's not about doing more. It's about doing less. You don't need to attain enlightenment. Enlightenment is not something that you attain. It's already a natural state that you fall back into. If one clings to what others have said and tries to understand Zen by explanation, he is like a dunce who thinks he can beat the moon with a pole or scratch an itching foot from the outside of a shoe. I really like that. We've all experienced that. Your shoe is itching. Your foot's itching. You're trying to scratch it from the outside of the shoe. That's because Alan's here, of course. Um, it will be impossible after all. Um, 
So now he says that now the writer of this book says he was he was lecturing and uh, the request of the students was that he would retell the old koans, endeavoring to inspire their Zen spirit. Um, and he says, I meant to use the koans as a man who picks up a piece of brick to knock at a gate. And after the gate is opened, the brick is useless and is thrown away. That's so important because it's saying that just like the payload of a rocket ship, a rocket ship flies up into space and then it lets go of that which propelled it into space. So if you cling to whatever your method was and you allow that method to continually be something that you keep holding on to and you keep needing that method, you're never going to actually be with God. You're just going to be keeping addicted to that method. So whether you're using some kind of drug or some kind of practice, you have to let it go at a certain point in order to fully enter that enlightenment space. I meant to use the koans as a man who picks up a piece of brick to knock at a gate. And after the gate is open, the brick is useless and is thrown away. In other words, this is the same thing as you use Zen as a raft to cross the river. But once you cross the river, let the raft go. You don't need to cling to that, you know, let go of whatever it is and let go even of letting go. It keeps going. Just let go of everything. My notes, however, were collected unexpectedly and there were 48 koans together with my comment and prose and verse concerning each, although their arrangement was not in the order of the telling. I've called the book The Gateless Gate, wishing students to read it as a guide. If a reader is brave enough and goes straight forward in his message meditation, no delusions can disturb him. He will become enlightened just as did the patriarchs, probably even better. But if he hesitates one moment, he is as a person watching from a small window for a horseman to pass by. And in a wink, he has missed seeing. So if you're hesitating, if you're constantly looking for reassurance or validation or what have you, you're never going to actually see it. You just have to let go enough to see it right now. That's kind of the point of, of all this. So here's a little uh, poem that he writes. The great path has no gates. Thousands of roads enter it. When one passes through this gateless gate, he walks freely between heaven and earth. So we had a quote earlier from the Buddha where we were saying like, when you have this cosmic mindset, you see everything, all these different worlds, almost like the seeds of a fruit. You see everything that's going on as just like a daydream. And that doesn't mean it's not important. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't seize the day. But it means don't take it too seriously. Whatever you think your problem is or whatever you think the solution is or whatever you're all high and mighty on about with your ego, don't take it so seriously. It's, it's playful in its very nature, just like a person playing an instrument. It's, it's not the end of the world if he plays the wrong note, but you're sincere in the way that you play. So too with life. It's just playing. And the same thing, believe it or not, with life and death. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to save lives and play the game that we're playing. It's a beautiful game and it's an important game. But it means always know with whatever you're doing, not to get lost in it. And maintain the peace and equanimity within yourself with whatever is going on outside. Whatever it is, maintain that peace. Um, so now a couple more stories and then we'll, we'll get to the, to the thick of it. Um, a soldier named 
uh, Nobushige came to Hakuin and asked, is there really a paradise and a hell? Who are you? inquired Hakuin. I'm a samurai, the warrior replied. You a soldier? exclaimed Hakuin. What kind of ruler would have you as his guard? Your face looks like that of a beggar. Nobushige became so angry that he began to draw his sword. But Hakuin continued, so you have a sword. Your weapon is probably much too dull to cut off my head. As Nobushige drew his sword, Hakuin remarked, here open the gates of hell. At these words, the samurai, perceiving the master's discipline, sheathed his sword and bowed. Here open the gates of paradise, said Hakuin. I, I can't say enough how, about how beautiful this story is. Because it shows you what's hell. Hell is being so lost in your ego and your anger. Somebody just insulted me. I have to kill them. That's hell. Constantly feeling like you need to defend your honor or whatever it may be. Taking yourself seriously, reacting out of emotion, being lost in whatever it is. That's hell. What was the transformation? He said, here open the gates. Hakuin. He said, here open the gates of hell. And that was his initial question. He was saying, oh, is there really a paradise and a hell? He, he, became, he realized, I'm doing it. I'm putting myself in hell. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly it. So for me, this, this is where it's at because it allows me to understand psychologically that I am partially not to blame, but culpable for whatever hell I'm experiencing. You might think whatever you're going through, whatever suffering is just almost like kaput. That's what God is kind of declaring for me right now. And it's like, no, whatever hell you think you're experiencing, that's just totally your part of that. You're, you're kind of partnering in that hell. You don't have to partner in it anymore. And you can make it into heaven by letting go at any moment. Yes, I did. Mikey, so you're saying that the hell is like a mirage? It's not, he's just trying to make the guy believe that that hell, that you're creating the hell? He's In not, a way, yes. He's not taking him to hell. He's telling him that you're so banged up that you're thinking you're in hell. Exactly. You put yourself in hell by being so ego-obsessed and ego-absorbed. Exactly. Great question. Final story. Basui wrote the following letter to one of his dis disciples who was about to die. The essence of your mind is not born, so it will never die. It is not an existence, which is perishable. It is not an emptiness, which is a mere void. It has neither color nor form. It enjoys no pleasures and suffers no pain. I know you are very ill. Like a good Zen student, you are facing that sickness squarely. You may not know exactly who is suffering, but question yourself. What is the essence of this mind? Think only of this. You will need no more. Covet nothing. Your end, which is endless, is as a snowflake dissolving in the pure air. So what this story does for me is it tells me exactly what we were just talking about and what I just asked. Is this hell something that I create? And it's saying, even if you're in the midst of a terrible sickness, 
you know, right now they, they're doing psychedelic trials for terminally ill cancer patients. And you read these accounts and they will bring tears to your eyes because you see people who are suffering and on the brink of death and their, their ribs are cracked and they're emaciated and levels of hell that you should not know. But they take this ego dissolving substance that allows them to get a glimpse, even for only a few moments, into the mystical experience, into feeling larger than themselves, into feeling like I'm not just this little old ego, and that the essence of my mind is really something far beyond my comprehension. And then they come back into this world, and the circumstances are exactly the same, and they're still dying of cancer in two weeks, and yet it relieves almost all of their suffering psychologically, and they become okay with death. Because they stop identifying as ego solely. And they start opening themselves to seeing whatever they are in any given moment as much more complicated and much more esoteric than they can ever really understand. And they kind of hold less tightly and cling less to whatever they've been clinging to. So I think that provides me with a lot of solace just knowing that there are things that we can do for people on, with that level of suffering. Um, now, I wrote a couple of things here for myself, answers to the Western mind. Um, so a lot of questions that come up often with what we've just spoken about and what we're going to talk about in a second with the Kabbalistic stuff is that accepting the world that is does not mean giving up. It means realizing that we don't see the whole picture. When we accept the world as it is with all the suffering and with all the pain, and that doesn't mean that we're not going to go and try to fix the world in some way. It also means that we're realizing just because the world is wabi-sabi, as they say, just because it has these cracks and these crevices to it, doesn't mean that that's absolute reality. It just means that that's just one perspective that I'm getting of it. And really, the world as a whole, the universe as a whole, has some perfection in it that I can't really understand. The other point I make for myself is respecting. I, yes, I did. You got it, but you got it. Perfect. The, the wabi sabi is that the oh. perfect out of the imperfect. Exactly. That the idea of wabi sabi is this beautiful art form. And ID got me the book that I'm reading still called Wabi Sabi about how they, they take these, these old pieces of pottery that have cracks in them and they use this beautiful gold to accentuate those cracks. And it becomes an even more respected and more valuable thing for its cracks. And that's the way we could start to see the world once we understand this idea of wabi-sabi, that the world really is, is beautiful because of its cracks and with its cracks. And a beautiful idea. Great point. <laughs> I, I, I just assume everybody knows what I'm talking about when I say wabi-sabi. <laughs> the truth of the matter is, it goes to show you that everybody's looking for perfect, but in wabi-sabi, you're making the imperfect perfect. Exactly. And, and the point is not to actually impose any kind of perfection, but to accept the world that is as somehow perfect and to continue with this feeling of it's imperfect. Even that feeling of it's imperfect and I need to fix it is part of the perfection and act on it. But just while you're acting on it, be present. That's the beauty. Um, and the second point, respecting esoteric practices rather than being cynical towards things that are not immediately in, intuitive to us. Do you think maybe this is heaven? This world's perfect. heaven? I think it's all a perspective. I think we're in heaven right now? I think it's equally heaven and hell depending on how you look at it. 
You think this? You think this is Olam Haba? Maybe, man. I think every moment contains Olam Haba if you know how to look at it. But it's it's a question. It's a question that we, that needs a, an experiential answer to it that I could never put into words, of course. But hopefully you'll you'll understand that one day directly. You know, one day, <laughs> one day, maybe right now. You know, <laughs> the next time I snap my fingers, you'll be enlightened. I'll put that idea in your mind. <laughs> I'll, I'll hypnotize you. Um, but you have to pay me a lot of money for that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I'm so started to charge. You'll get the bill in the mail. These opinions say that. Yeah, I think they do. But it's. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Basically, that idea. Basically, why why have to sin and why have to wait to go to hell if you can sin now and go to hell? Why do you have to wait to get to heaven if you can do something good now and get to heaven? Exactly. Basically, that. Mm. Agreed. But isn't that too much judgment going on like that? Like, I don't think it's about a moralistic right and wrong. I think it's about a being with what is exactly as it is. Is it possible to sin and still be in heaven? I don't think the word sin fully is is understandable at a certain point. Yeah. It's a tough question. You know, so one of the Buddhist statements is previously you were bound to the wheel of samsara with chains of iron. Now you're bound to the wheel of samsara with chains of gold. Meaning what people like to do is we play these ego and humility games with God in order to try to one up the universe in order to escape this wheel of birth and death. So you used to be bound to this wheel of birth and death with iron chains, with sin. Used to brag to all your friends, oh, I had this EJ and I went, I did this drug and I did all these different things. And I could brag about all my vices and people respect me for that. But then once I started getting on this enlightenment path, I realized, oh, that's not the way. And then you were bound with wheel with chains of gold, and you started to 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 tell God, and I did this, God, and I did this good deed, and I did this good deed, and I did I learned this much Torah and this many Dapim of Gemara. And that's another way of being bound to this wheel of birth and death. And, and the way to escape both of those is to stop trying to relate to the universe as a separate entity and to just realize that right now you are the universe. You're one with it in any given what's moment. Your act, what are your actions going to be then? It's uh, just being present in the moment and do as you will. And that, fu- that, that word will is very funny because doing as you will is also the will of God in a paradoxical sense. And that, that's a question that can never really be understood with words is where does my will end and what I will do end and God's will begin. And somehow the two are constantly overlapping. We just don't understand how. How do we know that God's will at all things? How could something happen that's not God's will? It's a paradox because on the one hand, it is God's will that evil happen. And on the other hand, it's not God's will that evil happen. So it's something to experience, something to experience by getting in line, as Morris Bennett will tell you, with the will of God. But it's a, it's a, it's a longer discussion or really experience. We'll talk. Yes. Give me an example of esoteric practice. So I think uh, the reason I put this here is because of all the Kabbalistic stuff. Right. That like a lot of the Kabbalistic stuff and the meditation and the way of exactly the heebie-jeebie stuff 
could often be seen as like really esoteric and weird until you understand it with a certain level of respect that is like, okay, even though it's not intuitive to me immediately, it still has a lot of value when you meditate on it and you experience the world through that lens. That's what I like to think. So, you know, let's, let's, de let's delve into some of the Kabbalistic stuff. Like that's the only thing. Does, does the question I'll ask you now is does who does once you discover who you are, maybe that question will become more apparent. Who is the, who is the you that's doing the good? Hashem. Ah. Okay. But you could also be that. You could also be part of the Hashem, or, or you could also be doing that, and yeah. that's something else. I don't, I don't have. I don't have an answer that could be put into words for any of these questions. These are fantastic questions. I think they're meant to be pondered and meditated on. I. I don't. I think yes and no. I think it's a paradox, because Hashem says in Yeshayahu. But and Hachamim changing in the like that God is the one who uh, creates light and darkness, good and evil. That's the original wording. Yeah, the original wording. Hachamim changes. What Yeah. Oh, it's in the pasuk. It's in the Yeshayahu. Yeah, that's the original pasuk. And then Hachamim changes to what because it's difficult to say that. I have to look it up. Yeah. Is it really bad? The point is. So that's bad. the thing. Is uh, is it really yeah. bad? Is it just a perspective? Yeah. Exactly. So we'll, we'll we could talk more about it, but it's it's a longer discussion. It's a paradox, and it's not something that could ever yeah, be understood. Be bad. That's only question. Like, why do some people have to get the job to be good, and some people have to? Who wants to know? What? Who wants to know? I'm asking you right now. Who wants to know? I want to know. Who are you? Figure that out, and then you'll have answers. We'll talk, we'll talk more about it after. <laughs> Let's talk about some Kabbalah first. Um, so we'll, we, we left off last time saying, although one cannot eliminate pride with the ego, one can set an intention and pray on it to be uplifted from that pride. And that's called grace. Uh, and like we said last week, the story of the monk who was accused of fathering a child, and he just kept saying, oh, is that so? Is that so? Even when they accused him of doing something he didn't do, and then once they apologized to him, for accusing him of a wrongdoing, all he kept saying is, is that so? So last time we spoke about equanimity and equanimity as being a natural consequence of achieving this state. And this is uh, both a Buddhist concept and a Kabbalistic idea. It's called Hishtavut in Hebrew. And they love to quote that Pasuk Shiviti Hashem Tamid I have placed God before me always. And that word Shiviti is like an equivalence. There's an equality and a balance to it where constantly I am just so present with what is that good and evil don't knock me off my feet. And I just am present with what is. So in the, in the theosophical school, which is this idea of knowing the higher realms of divinity, equanimity is seen as satisfying a divine need, unifying tef'eret and shekhinah. It's unifying two of the sefirot and in a way allowing the person to feel like, wow, I'm actually effectuating a change in the upper realms by just being equanimous. And I think what they meant by this is a deeper thing that they experienced, experienced such a level of peace from this equanimity that they said it, it just feels like something divine is going on. It's an experience to have. The Baal Shem Tov says as follows. Here's a quote. I have set the Lord... Always before me, Shiviti Adonai Tamid Kimi Mini The word Shiviti comes from the word Hishtavut. 
to someone who practices equanimity, everything that happens is of equal significance, regardless of whether it results in his being praised or despised. He has the same attitude of indifference toward everything else, including the food he eats. So I wrote in here in parentheses, nothing special. There's in that, in that book by uh, one of these Zen gurus, he says, it's all nothing special. It's really just usually a natural result of ceasing to identify with the ego. This perspective of enlightenment, you expect, oh, there's going to be, you know, unicorns and butterflies and rainbows everywhere. And it's like, no. Once you get there, it just is. It just is reality. And it's not looking for some kind of high, some kind of good feeling necessarily that might come along with it. But it's not about that high or that good feeling. It's just about seeing truth as it is. Emet and sheker, truth and, and falsehood, rather than top vara, like they after eating from the etzadad, from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, and, I, and like I said, it's a natural result that comes about. Everything is of equal significance to him because there's a continuation of the quote from the Baal Shem Tov, because his evil inclination has been completely removed. To achieve such a state of equanimity is a religious attainment of the highest order. We must worship God in this way with all our might because it is needed. Yani, it is necessary to fulfill a divine need. And God wants to be worshipped in all possible ways. Practice communion with God and work to achieve the divine unity to bring Tiferet and Shekhinah together. So obviously he's, you know, personifying God and that's, that's part of the way that we relate to God and that's fine. But a huge part of this is that just by worshiping God in this equanimous way, it feels like I'm taking a step towards God and that God is taking a step towards me. And that's an incredible feeling to have. It's an incredible experience to have, even if it's not, you know, linguistically accurate all the time. They talk about this idea in Hebrew, bitul hayesh. Bitul hayesh, what does that mean? What does levatel mean? To annihilate, right? To annihilate the ego. The yesh is the ego. And we have the yesh me'ain, the something from nothing. We say nothing really matters. It's a funny thing because it means two things. If, oh, nothing really matters. Let's be depressed about it. It's like, no, the nothingness, the ayin, the nothingness of the world really creates matter. Really creates yesh me'ain, something from nothing. So the bitulayech is the annihilation of that ego. And the irony is, this can be most successfully done gently. It's not about annihilating with a sword and a shield. It's about letting it die away of itself. Once it stops being so obsessed and it unravels a lot of its, of, of its complexes. So along with humility and equanimity, this idea of uh, an, um, annihilation of the ego, bitulayech, leads to an attainment of various forms of mystical experience, said the Kabbalists. They said, they spoke of emptying oneself to make space for God. So there's that famous quote, I think, from uh, Rabbi Schneerson, that, or, or one of the, the Hasidic masters, one who is so filled up with himself leaves no room for God. So you think about it, it's so often on a daily basis, we're so worried and obsessed about our own problems, and that's fine, and we should ask God to help us with those, but at a certain point, Empty yourself of that when you approach God, especially when you're approaching God in prayer. Make it less about me, 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 and more about an expansive experience. And say, God, I want you to fill me up. So instead of making your ego into God, 
make God into your ego. Um, and it's, you know, it's similar to that word Rahmanut, compassion. What's the shoresh? What's the root of it? Rehem, womb. Why should womb have anything to do with compassion? Because it's a, it's a subtraction within the woman as a space for the, for the fetus, for the baby. So in, a, in the same way, God had Rahamim, say the Kabbalists, God had this compassion, this mercy. He made a space within creation for us to exist. That we wouldn't be able to be here because it's all God. It's all infinitely God. How could there be a me and a God? And the answer is Rahamim, compassion, and making a space. So just like God makes a space for us, we make a space for him with the tabernacle, with the mishkan. And that's our way of saying, God, we're going to try to make a, a, an emulation of what you're doing with us. So whether it be prophecy or sacred intercourse of the sefirot, humility and equanimity are needed. We always have to remember those two ideas, that if we're ever trying to impose our ego or looking to gain something from it, that's not what it's about. Um, there's a great a book by Jack Cornfield called After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. That you might think that, oh, this ecstasy, this enlightenment is just going to keep being pervasive the rest of my life. But in reality, it's the laundry. And that itself is beautiful. And that itself is part of that ecstasy eventually and part of that enlightenment. Um, the mystic had spiritual aspirations, but also physical, financial, and social needs. They needed to navigate a path between the spiritual realm that they sought to inhabit and the physical realm in which they were compelled to reside. So a mystic is a human being like me and you. They have to be able to balance all these parts of themselves. So now we're going to transition a little bit into more extreme versions of this stuff. A lot of these individuals saw the soul and the body as being in perpetual conflict. They didn't see it as all one. If they did see it all as one, they wouldn't necessarily be feeling this way. And this led to a lot of asceticism, asceticism being refraining from a lot of physical pleasures. Uh, they saw physical pleasure as a trap, diverting one's attentions from spiritual goals. They, said, they saw celibacy as important because it banned, uh, sorry, it was banned by rabbinic law. But the mystics wanted to focus only on God during sex in order to free themselves from these temptations of physical pleasure. So it got to a certain degree where they were creating for themselves certain psychological complexes. They couldn't just be with what is because they were too busy trying to show God how humble they're being. This is part of the, the neuroticism that happens, I think, when you don't balance your spiritual practice with some of the psychotherapy that we try to do. That's my own humble opinion. We can fight about that. You guys send me an angry email if you disagree. I'd love to read it and uh, maybe we'll read it during class. Um, more concerned with giving pleasure to the Shekhinah rather than to themselves or to their partners, right? You think God wants you to do something with the self-righteous knowledge that you're doing something for him? Who is that helping? You're being more self-righteous. It's not about being self-righteous. That's being bound to the wheel of samsara with chains of gold. That's insisting, God, look how great I am because I'm doing all these acts of good deed and kindness. It's saying... Come off it already. Stop trying to be one up on the universe because you are the universe. You're one with it. Um, 
dietary laws that they created, including long fasts, uh, some even eating only on Shabbat. They would only eat one day a week. One Hasidic master refused to chew his food, lest he derive pleasure from the taste of the food. Who do you think you're impressing with this? Note that Hanambam, by the way, believed in the Shavil Hazahavi, believed in the, in the middle path to avoid all this. The Buddha developed the middle way due to practices exactly like this. Hasidei Ashkenaz. Yes, Aidi. What's that, Rambam? What is its explanation about? Oh, sorry. Shavil Hazahav means the golden middle, the golden mean that he gets from Aristotle, that we shouldn't veer to asceticism, and we should also not go to these extreme forms of physical pleasure. We should find a balance. And we should just be present with what we're doing. And, and that's what means the middle? The middle path. And you should be able to eat an apple and appreciate the taste of a beautiful fruit for what it is. And say, you know, thank you, God, for giving me this piece of fruit and the physical enjoyment that comes with it. Uplifting the mundane to the spiritual. That's what we're going to discuss in a second. Yeah. So that's the balance that we're looking for. Because if you're not balanced, if you're running away from pleasure because you think it's going to put you too much into your ego, that's just as much ego. Shyness is just as much ego as arrogance, right? Shyness is also a very self-conscious awareness of being an ego, just like arrogance is. It goes in a totally different direction, but shyness is pretty unhealthy in a certain form, just like arrogance could be very unhealthy. Eckhart Tolle talks about this. Um, so I think these, yeah. What's your, what's your take on Judaism, Buddhism, and, and Japanese? So many of these connections, so many of the explanations we're going through, it's almost like they all weave together. It's pretty ironic that, that they all fall in line. Yeah. The same theory. I think it's amazing. You know, like uh, Aldous Huxley has a great book called The Perennial Philosophy. And he marvels at the fact that all these different mystical traditions kind of converge, like convergent evolution, like the wings of a bat and the wings of a, 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 uh, an insect. They don't have the same homology. They don't have the same underlying biology. And yet they both converge on this idea of a wing is functional. So mm -hmm. convergent evolution of religions all brought each one discovered on its own in its own little area of the earth. Humans discovered the idea of unity and oneness as having utility. I think the same goes for this. That the Buddhists and the and the rabbinic uh, tradition kind of go in the same direction, and we even have the Hachamim saying that when Abraham had uh, children with Keturah, and he sent them to the east, they try to say that the, there's sparks of the Abrahamic monotheistic tradition within the Buddhist ideas and within the Eastern ideas. So that's also to your question. Like th there's a lot of Abrahamic monotheism within the Eastern traditions. So I think that's really beautiful. Um, so Hasid Ashkenaz believed in God's explicit will, the mitzvot, and implicit will, the unknown, which made it necessary to always repent, as one never knew if one was trans transgressing a hidden will of God. So the answer to this is stop constantly being so neurotic. This is very neurotic, this, and it's, it's understandable. For an oppressed people, it's understandable for a people who lived in ghettos and had pogroms constantly, things like that. But for us, we're hoping that now, because we are trying to come out of that trauma, maybe 
we could relate to God in less of a neurotic way, where we're constantly looking for God's validation or God's pat on the back. And instead of doing that, just be present with God. Because anything other than that is ego. And ego is, at the end of the day, a separation from God. Don't hate your ego. Love your ego. And give it it's it's uh, you know it's gratitude gra- be grateful for it because it's trying to protect you say thank you for trying to help me the same thing goes for your dark thoughts or your anger or any difficult emotion say thank you thank you for trying to help me you can go now though it's okay i have it from here i got it right demonstrating love of god by being tested with physical pleasures of this world so it's interesting uh, a lot of people try to show that, you know, even though there's physical pleasures, like, oh, I'm going to show how much I love God by not delving into these. And we know the story of David HaMelech before he slept with Bathsheba. The Hachamim say that he said, God, I want you to test me and I'll show you how much I love you that I won't transgress. And of course, he ends up sleeping with Bathsheba. And the point of that is be careful what you wish for. Be careful how much you're asking to be tested with the physical pleasures of this world, and just be present. Because in a way, that's ego as well, trying to show, oh, look, I was tested and I prevailed. Who are you trying to impress? Um, The martyrdom of Rabbi Akiva was seen as a paradigm to be emulated. The ultimate love of God and self-sacrifice in the Midrashim, ironically, are very critical of Rabbi Akiva, if you read between the lines. They're critical of his way of relating to God and having to go out with this blaze of glory. That's not what Judaism is about. Judaism is not about dying for God. It's about living for God. But wait a second. He didn't have a choice in the matter. So that's, that's true in, in, in mo- most of the Midrashim. But the Midrashim leading up to that one explain that he held very extreme positions that led to that downfall. And that maybe if he wasn't in those extreme positions, he wouldn't have been led to that point. That's what the other Midrashim say. And they compare his derashot of every koltag vetag, every spike of every letter to the combs that he was spiked with at the end of his life. You can make of that as you wish. But I think the message is there that we're not a religion of martyrdom. We're a religion of living and enjoying and appreciating the life that we were given. So dying al-Kiddush Hashem in the Crusades became... A very popular thing, excessive excessive acts of repentance for sleeping with a non-Jewish woman. What did some of these rabbis say? That you should sit naked among ants in summer and let the bees consume you. This is absolute madness. So why am I bringing all this up? I think a lot of this is trying to push home the point that we made earlier, that if you don't have the balance that we were talking about earlier, if you don't have the, the spiritual psychotherapy, you might take mysticism in this direction and you might go so far down the rabbit hole that you let ants consume your flesh because you committed a sin, what you, can, what you thought was a sin. Humans feeling separate from this world has caused us to engage in psychotic behaviors to try to earn our worthiness as separate creatures, to lessen the gap between us and God that actually never existed. It's an incredible thing once you realize, holy cow, I was putting up these barriers with God. And because of that, it drove me to doing all kinds of wacky stuff. And you can put all that down. It's almost like OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. It's not rational. 
these obsessions and these compulsions. But once you see the world as it is, you become less obsessed with trying to, to please God and trying to never feel like you're okay right now. That's a big part of it. A big part of this way of relating to God is an unworthiness at all times. I'm constantly unworthy. Is that a barrier? It's a huge barrier, in my humble opinion, sometimes, where it's like you have a phony holy and you have a phony unholy. The phony holy is trying to be holier than everybody else, even though he's not really. And the phony unholy is saying, no, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, I'm nothing. Even though it's like, come off it, that's ego too. It's all ego. I think it's very real. I'm so glad you came. And I'm so glad you asked me that question last week because with just Judaism and without some of this stuff, you don't get this picture. You get lost in a lot of these practices and a lot of these ways of thinking. And for me, a little bit of psychology goes a very long way within religion. That's just my humble opinion. Is, is yes, exactly. It is. It, it goes hand in hand with religion in a lot of ways and spirituality. I wouldn't say it's religion. I would say it's spirituality. Yeah. Okay. Oh, little chamba. Like to be humble, ego. Stop thinking of yourself all the time. So humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So stop trying to be humble. Stop trying to be arrogant. Just be and stop thinking about yourself. Go help other people. And then once you feel good about yourself, okay, let that feeling come and go. And then just go, go back to doing good and do more good. And then go back and do more good. Try that. See, see what happens, you know? Stop thinking of yourself, but think of God. Yeah. I think that's beautiful. But that is what... Be more God-centered instead of being more human-centered. Self-centered. Self-centered. Who 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 wants to know? <laughs> That's always my answer. Who wants to know? Um, so so you, you see that the psychosis develops from this these deep seated psychological complexes, and my goal with you guys is to help you overcome those. Wait, who wants to know? It's like the ego that wants to know. Challenging I'm challenging you to figure that out with your own practice of meditation everything you ask is to ask you right back not really you're not really asking right back but you know that when they when the person would come to the guru and they would say yeah they would come to the guru and they would say like uh you know my mind is not at ease and i i can't placate my mind he says okay show me your mind so i can placate it and he says when i look for it i can't find it he says there you have it it's placated and it, it, it's a game that we play where we're constantly thinking of ourselves in a certain way. But you start realizing this is a delusion. It's a total delusion. This concept of myself that I have in any given moment is a delusion. And the more I could let go of that, the healthier I'll be. Elazad of Worms said, Each person who has the wisdom of God in his heart joyfully considers the desire of fulfilling the will of his creator and of performing God's commandments with all his heart. One who loves God is not concerned with the pleasures of this world and is not desirous of leisure, enjoyment with his wife and children. Every mundane thing is insignificant to him. Nothing matters except performing the will of the creator, leading others to virtue, sanctifying God's name, and even making sacrifice of himself out of love for God. So there's a beauty in this. 
but there's an extremity in it. I disagree. It's saying like I'm only able. Exactly good. So what's the tension here? Loving the particular and loving the general. What this person is doing, Allah's out of worms, with all due respect, is he's saying, I can only love the general and I cannot love the particular. So because of that, I can't really, I shouldn't really enjoy leisure time with my wife and kids. I should only think of everything as divine. Why? So you know why? Because he's ego obsessed in a very sad way. He's ego obsessed in a way where he's being a phony holy. In my humble opinion, and this is not personal to him. I, I don't know him personally exactly, but I think the words themselves scream right. that you to me. Right. Yeah, it doesn't sound right because it's it's not necessarily going to lead you. If it led him, you know, but it's not necessarily going to lead a person towards that. So what do you say to people that like every single second they have to learn Torah? Big rabbis. So I wrote right here. The paradox is we can love the totality through loving the particulars of life. And ironically, it's only through loving and embracing all the particulars of life that you can love the totality as well. And we know that famous, and we'll end with this, the hatat of the nazir, the nazir, the monk in Judaism would bring a korban, a, a, a sacrifice, at the, a korban hatat, a sin offering at the end of his monkhood. Why? Because according to one opinion, he stopped being a nazir, he stopped being a monk, you have to repent for not being a monk anymore. But the other more prevailing opinion is you refrained from enjoying of the particulars of this world, including wine. And therefore, you must repent. Because the first mitzvah in the whole Torah was, Mikol from every single tree in the garden shall you eat. And then God said, don't eat from this one. But the first commandment was, appreciate the world that we have and eat from these trees. Thank you so much all for coming. Any questions or comments? I'm still here. Yeah, Mike, when I came in late, that word Kohan, what was that? What was that word? Ah, so a Zen Kohan. Are we praying? Are we praying? Is, uh, yeah, I think we're praying in a minute if they have a minyan. Um, a Zen Kohan is, is like a riddle. It's a riddle that's not meant to be solved with logic, but rather it's like a funny joke that's meant to really, uh, you know, shock you into enlightenment in a way that's like the same way a joke is funny and it causes a spontaneous belly laugh. The same thing with these Zenkawans, where if you need to explain a joke, the joke's not funny. That was a bad joke. If you, if you need to explain a koan, one of these riddles, that's not a good riddle. It's supposed to shock you into enlightenment. And yeah, one, and one example is, one example of a Zen koan is, they said, what's the fundamental principle of Buddhism? And he says, ping ting comes for fire. The God of fire is coming for fire. And he's like, oh, uh, the, 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 the guy says, oh, can you explain it to me? He's like, yeah, if we're the God of fire, we already have the fire. What do we need to come for fire? He's like, aha, I see you didn't understand it. He says, now you ask me, the guru says to the student, says, okay, yeah, what's the fundamental principle of Buddhism? He says, ping ting comes for fire. And that's it. It's supposed to shock you right now. And if it didn't, it didn't. Okay, it didn't work. I thought about an answer, but like here, this, all these stuff have amazing, this is for you. I highly recommend this book. I'm, I think I'm going to get it to you as a gift ID. It's called Zen Flesh, Zen Bones. And it's full of these stories. This quote is from it. This quote is from it. <coughs> Say it again. 48. 
Oh, uh, full, oh, the 48 stories in the second part of the book. The first one had 101, the 48, and then there's like another 30 or something. Really incredible book. And for me, what this does is it, it allows me to enjoy what's the equivalent of funny jokes. It allows me to enjoy what I see as like in any moment when I remember this stuff, it could shock me into a state of higher consciousness, which is what I hope for. What's the name of the book? Zen Flesh, Zen Bones. There's PDFs online. If you want, I can send you the PDF. Here's the here's the PDF. Um, let me let me copy paste it, and I'll put it in the. You know how to look look at the chat here. Let me see. Uh, yeah, I'll send it to you. Um, here, so you you have this this uh, you see in the, the chat box. You know, I'll send it to you also. I think for sure. ID, you're the best. I love you. I'll catch you. I love you too. Thank you for coming and thank you for participating. As always, you you light me up. I love you so much. Alamak, have a great week. Erwin, uh, Alan Kish says goodbye. Where is he? Where is he? You can't see me. I'm seeing him now. <laughs> see ID. Thank you. 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 Thank you.